Well, this weekend we wrap up this series that we've been in for the past several weeks called A Better Story, based out of the book of Acts. And if you've been with us at all within the past month or so, one thing that we have continually learned is that regardless of our past, Jesus wants to write us a better story. Now, I don't know where you're at in your journey with God. It could be that you're here and this is the last place that you want to be on a Sunday morning. You may still be hungover from last night or whatever. And so regardless of your motivations for being here, despite whatever your beliefs or opinions in life may be, I want you to know that we're glad you're here uh, and that you matter to us as a church. Now, before we study scripture and talk about something that I think we all struggle with to a degree in life, I want to give you a brief overview of how my family has evolved to be where it is today. The truth is, the story of my family could be broken down into about three different chapters, each defined by a particular question that was asked during that stage of our relationship. Each question was asked between my wife and I, and were absolutely foundational for the progression and growth of our relationship. The three questions were as follows, will you be my girlfriend, will you marry me, and are you ready to start having children? Now, no, those questions were not all asked on the same night, all right? (laughs) Uh, Savannah and I grew up together in Louisville, Kentucky. Her dad was one of my pastors, and my dad was one of her family physicians. And so we always knew each other quite well and, and were acquaintances for quite some time. But our relationship really didn't take off until my senior year, her junior year of high school. We went on this leadership retreat together, and it was on that retreat that she and I really bonded. Well, we got back from that retreat and started hanging out a whole lot, and uh, it eventually got to that awkward phase of our relationship where we needed to define what we were and where we were headed. Well, her dad made it very clear to me that if I ever had intentions on dating Savannah, that I needed to first ask his permission. And so one Saturday afternoon, I took him out to lunch to Applebee's in Louisville and uh, asked his permission to date Savannah, and we made small talk for a little while, and and at the end of that uh, meal that we shared together, he ended up giving uh, his blessing for me to proceed forth with our relationship. And so about a week later, I took Savannah out to our favorite little Cuban restaurant in Louisville, and just the two of us, it was our first one-on-one date with each other. And on the way home that night from the restaurant, in my car, with knees shaking, a little bit nervous, I turned to Savannah and I asked that first really significant question to her. I said, Savannah, will you be my girlfriend? And of course she said yes, and I got to tell you, I mean, there was nothing in the world that could go wrong at that point. I mean, I was on cloud nine and uh, I was just on a high at that point. Well, about two years later, uh, we were on a date uh, to celebrate our two-year anniversary. And before we headed to the restaurant for that particular night, I stopped by our favorite little park that that, that we would always go to. It was a surprise for Savannah. She didn't know what I was doing. We both got out of the car when we got to the park. We walked to the gazebo that was in the very middle of the park. And when we got there, to Savannah's surprise, I pulled a ring out of my pocket, got down on one knee, and I said that second most significant question. I said, Savannah, I love you. Will you marry me? Well, of course, she said yes. And seven months later, we were, we were married. And uh, moving forward, we, we finished Bible college. And immediately, we moved to Texas, where I served as a pastor for a little while. Well, I believe it was in early 2011 or so, we were both just hanging out at our home one afternoon, and we both just looked at each other, and at the same time kind of said, are are you ready to start having kids yet? Well, she said yes, and and so my follow-up question to that was, well, can we start trying right now? Uh, (laughs) 
Savannah's always had a really difficult time keeping her hands off me. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm serious. I, Spiritual morale of the room just going down. <laughs> well, next month we celebrate our seventh wedding anniversary and uh, quite an accomplishment for Savannah that she's put up with me for that long. And I'm sure I'll hear about that one later on today. Uh, but I want to state the obvious for you for, for just a moment. You see, in each stage of our relationship, if I didn't ask her a particular question, then our relationship would have never developed and ultimately progressed to be where it's at today. You see, every big step that we took along the way was preceded with a particular question that was asked between the two of us. Now, I'm willing to bet that if you were to take a step back and you were to examine some of the different relationships that you have in your life, the origins for those particular relationships probably began or at least grew through a question that was asked between the two of you. You see, questions have the ability to foster and trigger intimacy between you and someone else. Now, what if I were to tell you that the same could be true between you and God? I mean, what if your journey with God could begin or at least continue to grow by simply asking a few different questions? I mean, what if the answer to all your, your lack of joy and lack of contentment and peace in life goes down to the fact that you really haven't run hard after some honest questions that you have about this whole Jesus thing? You see, somewhere along the way, doubts and questions in the church has been looked down upon. At times, they are viewed as immature or disrespectful towards God. I mean, doubts in the church are kind of like your creepy uncle who every time you see him, he always has a new girlfriend or a new dog when he shows up at family gatherings. I mean, you're aware that he's there, but you'd just rather not acknowledge him, right? <laughs> and so what if I were to tell you today that, that God not only tolerates our doubts, but he desires that we bring them to him so that we can know him and know him more completely. What's interesting is that in this series that we've looked at in the book of Acts, uh, each person that we have studied, before they make a decision to follow Jesus, that decision is always preceded with a particular question that's asked. Uh, we looked at Acts chapter 8 about a month ago, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, Philip was a man that was sent by God to, to go to the eunuch and address his questions and doubts. Look at what is asked in Acts chapter 8 verse 34. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? You see, every significant, you, every significant relationship you have will have questions along the way. Questions reveal humility because you are inadvertently declaring that you don't know something, right? Now, you could be sitting there right about now and thinking to yourself, well, hey, I, I get a pass on today's message because I've never had doubts about God or his word a day in my life. And to that, I'd say, really? I mean, you've never wondered, did Jesus really rise from the dead? I mean, is God really sovereign? I mean, look at what I'm going through right now. Are you kidding me? Has God ever seemed absent or, or silent in the midst of your, your prayer life? You see, if you have never doubted God or his word before, a question I'd have for you, is your faith really your own or is it something that you think that you've inherited from your mom or dad? Author Tim Keller says it like this in his book, The Reason for God. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. 
Therefore, if you have never doubted God before, I wonder, is your faith really your own? Or do you think that you're somehow saved by association? And so could it be that today doubt is not the opposite of faith, but really it can be an invitation for deep-rooted belief? I also recognize there are others of us in here today who aren't there yet with the Lord. We wouldn't consider ourselves followers of Jesus, maybe. I mean, maybe you've run after questions before and you've, you've seeked answers, but what you've come up with just haven't been satisfying enough to place your trust in Christ. And so before we go any further, a question I just want to throw your way, I want you to consider as we discuss today is this. Are you, are you willing to discover what's right, even if it's going to cost you something? Are you willing to identify truth, that there is truth out there, even if it's going to mean something for your life? Now, if your, question, if, if your response to this question is, is yes, I want you to know that there are many here today who would sit down with you in this moment and say, hey, I've been there before. Keep running hard after those questions. You are eventually going to come upon something that, that will resonate deep within you. But if your answer to this question is no, and you fear what the implications may be for your life if you do indeed discover that there is a God out there who desires to be in a relationship with you. If your answer to this question is no, then, then I just want to ask you in a very loving way, why are you here? I mean, are you hoping that this is going to count as some good work to outbalance what you did on Friday night? Are you looking for encouragement or inspiration you see, I probably don't know you all that well, but I'm willing to bet that you are running after something. You are searching. I mean, every one of us in this room can identify with the fact that we are running after acceptance and approval and significance and meaning in life. I mean, if you're not, then why are you working so hard to get that promotion? If you're not, then why when you have a bad day, you feel the need to go out and spend a lot of money? You see, you are searching for satisfaction on some level. But what if the answer to what you're running after can only be found by giving up your life? So if you have your Bibles, what I want you to do is go ahead and turn to the New Testament book of Acts. Um, that is right in between the Gospel of John, the biography of Jesus according to John, and uh, the book of Romans. Uh, if you don't own a Bible or you don't have it on your phone or iPad, there's a black Bible right in front of you. I believe we're going to be on page 785 in that Bible right in front of you. Uh, today we're going to pick up in chapter 17 of the book of Acts. And just a reminder, the book of Acts serves as a blueprint, uh, kind of a biography of what was happening in the early church after Jesus uh, went back to heaven to be with his father. Now, as you turn there, I want to give you a little context in what's happening in chapter 17. The Apostle Paul, who was a man used by God to spread the message of Jesus and plant churches during the first century, kept running into trouble in each town that he was in. And so Paul, he's forced to leave the city of Berea and board a ship to Athens, Greece. In Athens, he was waiting for his buddies Silas and Timothy. And so if you're in chapter 17, let's pick up in verse 16. Uh, words will be up here on the screen. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now the first thing I want you to notice in this text is that Paul reasoned with people in the synagogue and marketplace. You might want to highlight or underline that word on your device or in your Bible. Notice that it doesn't say that Paul argued with people, all right? 
He didn't stand on a street corner with a big sign saying, you all are going to hell. No, he reasoned with them. And this is a word that actually occurs about 13 times in the New Testament. And it's the idea uh, of processing, giving, and receiving information in a back and forth motion with someone. Why? To reach deeper understanding. You see, though our faith seems very unrealistic on the surface, I mean, let's be honest, our call to give up our life is rooted in the claim that a dead man resurrected 2,000 years ago. Yet when you start voicing questions, I think you'll realize with time that Christianity really is the best solution available. Now, I'm not saying that faith is not required. In fact, God says that without faith, it's totally impossible to please him. But you see, we don't submit ourselves to a blind faith that is rooted in unsubstantial evidence. There's a balance, you see. Here's the thing. You might want to write this down. That answers to our questions must be rooted in both what? Faith and reason. Now, some of us in this room are following Jesus and we don't really know why. And you see, that is a dangerous place to be because it can lead to a form of hypocrisy since your foundation was never really secure to begin with. You see, never is our lack of faith in God revealed more than when our lifestyle doesn't really match up with what we proclaim and what we say we believe. And so if you say that you follow Jesus, are you listening to what he says about sex before marriage? I mean, you call yourself a Christian, but with those who you work with in the office Know that there's something distinctive about the way that you treat them. I mean, you say you want to be on mission with Jesus, but if you were to answer every single one of your prayers within the past week with a yes, how many lost people would end up being saved? If I were to ask you why you are a Christian, and the only thing that you can point to is the fact that you prayed some prayer or you raised your hand when you were a kid at some camp because you feared hell, then you need to know it is so much more than that. While those experiences may be a good place to start, they're a horrible place to remain. Let's keep going. Uh, verse 18 <clears throat> says this, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, talking about Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remark, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now the Epicureans followed the Greek philosopher Epicurus who taught that the purpose of life was personal pleasure and happiness. And so they believed in avoiding thoughts about suffering and death and seeking peace and, and running after humanitarian good. Their belief system was somewhere along the lines of a modern day evolutionist. The Stoics, on the other hand, were followers of the Greek thinker Zeno and believed that somewhere there was this deity out there directing human history. Many Stoics were known to be very prideful and self-sufficient. You see, with either philosophy you have here in this text, you have at the center the exaltation of self. And honestly, that's not much different than how some of us choose to live. I mean, we love to make ourselves the point, don't we? I mean, never do I feel this response or this pull more than when I pull into my driveway in the evenings after I've had a long day at work. And so when I walk in the door, my temptation is to say, all right, where's my dinner? I mean, why didn't, why didn't you cut the grass for me today, baby? Huh? I mean, can you please do something about our kids? Because they are really annoying me right now. I mean, they're screaming their heads off. What have you fed them all day long? By a brief show of hands, how many of you think that that would be a good idea if I did that when I come home in the evenings? 
All right, good. We had one person raise their hand last hour. Uh, <laughs> need to pray for him. <laughs> but you know what? We laugh, but don't we all feel that natural pull within us to make our circumstances about us? Nobody has to teach us to run after personal gratification and comfort and pleasure, right? And yet we do realize that there is more to life than, than what, we, what we think we need and what we think we want. I think all of us realize this. God, in fact, I think has planted this curiosity within each of us for something greater, for something more. Back in 2013, Jim Carrey tweeted this from his Twitter account. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of. Why? So they can see that it's not really the answer. Now this is coming from somebody that we would say on the surface has arrived. And yet what does it say when the person that we believe has it all says it's not really the answer to anything? And so if it's true that the origin for every significant relationship begins with a question, things are about to take a turn here for some in this crowd. I want you to look at verse 19. Then they took him talking about Paul, and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Okay, so there's that question. The origin of every relationship progresses or at least begins with a question. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Now, the Areopagus was a council of philosophers who influenced matters uh, of morals and religious affairs. Now, they had never heard the message of Jesus before, and so they were rather intrigued by this. Now, let's time out here for just a minute. If you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, what I'm about to say doesn't really apply to you. You're off the mat on this one, all right? But for every one of us in here today that calls, we call ourselves Christians, we know in this scene that Paul was really uncomfortable. I mean, verse 16 says that he saw the idolatry and, and, and he was greatly distressed. And so Paul really has a big decision to make as he's walking with these men to the council. Will he condemn them at first for living the way that they do? Or will he seek to establish common ground in an effort to win them towards Jesus? And will he let his anger show or will he make an effort to redeem what they were familiar with for the sake of the gospel? Let's look at verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way that you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. I want you to notice that Paul was invited in. He didn't impose himself. He didn't knock on their door, all right? Rather, he was a student of their culture first and foremost. He wasn't some disconnected weirdo, all right? It's as if Paul became one of them so that he might establish enough credibility to be heard, And so if you consider yourself a member at Crossroads, if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, I want you to write this down and understand that sometimes our approach to people's questions about faith determines the receptiveness of our answers. Sometimes our approach to people's questions determines the receptiveness of our answers. Now our approach is why worship styles around here frequently change. 
You see, a worship style is a particular language, and chances are there is a particular style that resonates with you because it speaks deeply into your soul. Now, as our culture shifts and progresses, so must our style because the language is different than, much more different than it was five and ten years ago. Now, here's the thing. Our message is timeless. It will never change. But our methods must be timely or else we risk creating unnecessary barriers to the gospel. Now, it may be uncomfortable at times, but we must always be willing to forsake our personal preferences for the sake of growing God's kingdom. Now, for you personally, what does your approach look like for you in your neighborhood? I mean, do you even know your neighbors? Are you building relationships with your coworkers? Or are you burning bridges? I mean, are you redeeming time spent with your son's baseball team as you get to know the parents of players? Are you inviting them into your home? You see, may we be a church that is a constant student of our culture so that we may be looking for ways to redeem and build bridges with people who are living without hope. I mean, may, may we be willing to put ourselves in uncomfortable atmospheres for the sake of advancing the gospel. And so Paul acknowledges that these people were very religious. I mean, they even have an altar describing their inner sense of some God out there that they don't know yet. And so Paul, he, he meets them right where they're at, and he says, let me show you a better way. Well, let's see what, what Paul has to say. Look at verse 24. <clears throat> the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now I want you to notice, again, he's using common truth that they knew to build bridges in order to point them towards the gospel. Let's keep going here. <clears throat> Therefore, Paul says, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now, what does he do? He commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Talking about Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now we don't have enough time to really unpack everything that Paul is saying here. But his point is this. Whatever you think God is, he's much different and he's far better. I mean he is the creator, not some created object. He is sovereign, not some whiny force that is dependent upon us. He can be personal, not some distant or immune, not someone who's distant or immune to our circumstances. And you see, though we are broken and sin separates us from his holy presence, he has enabled only one way to be connected back to him, and that's through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And notice what Paul says in verse 31, he says that God has graciously provided proof of his love. Well, that proof of his love, the resurrection, also has proof. You see, if the resurrection didn't happen, you do get it that nothing else in Scripture would really matter, right? 
I mean, nothing else in Scripture would have the power to save. It would just be a bunch of morals and good wisdom here and there. And so maybe you're sitting there thinking to yourself right about now, well, well, that's great, Patrick, but how do I really know that Jesus resurrected from the dead? Well, I just want to take a moment to give you three really objective reasons I think that point to the certainty of Jesus crashing his own funeral. I, I pulled these reasons from a book called Evidence for the Resurrection by Josh McDowell. He was a guy that considered him to be a, who considered himself to be an agnostic for the longest time and believes Christianity to be utterly worthless until, until one day someone really challenged him to intellectually research the evidence and draw his own conclusions about God. You see, only until McDowell started asking questions did his relationship with God really begin and grow. And so here's a non-exhaustive list of why the resurrection is believable. The first reason is this, the large number of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And more than 500 people saw the physically resurrected body of Jesus. Now logic tells us that the more people involved as witnesses, the more reliable the testimony. And while this claim is recorded in one of Paul's letters uh, to, to the church in Corinth, most scholars agree that Paul was actually quoting a well-known creed that circulated the church anywhere from three to eight years after the resurrection. And so here's the point. Paul could have never claimed that Jesus appeared to 500 people so soon after the event if it didn't actually happen. Now that detail is given to us in Scripture, and it was given to the first century believers because Paul, in essence, is declaring, look, if you don't believe me that this actually happened, go and ask them. They're still alive. And so, you put all 500 witnesses in a courtroom to testimony for about six minutes each, and you have a minimum of 50 hours worth of first-hand eyewitness records. Number two, the inclusion of hostile witnesses. Now, Jesus didn't just appear to friends and followers, which would have made their testimony really biased, right? I mean, let's consider James, Jesus' half-brother. Now, you may say, well, he's his half-brother. He's, he was his family member. Well, the Bible says that during Jesus' ministry that his brother James did not accept him as Lord and Christ. But then later on, for, after Jesus' resurrection, James ends up surrendering to Christ and writing a book in the New Testament. Now, let's be straight, all right? James is perhaps the best proof we have that Jesus is God. You know why? Well, what would your brother have to do to prove to you that he was God? Think about that for a moment. Josephus, an objective Jewish historian, notes that James was so convinced that Jesus, his brother, was Lord, that he was martyred because he couldn't deny the truth that his brother really was God. Number three, no one during the first century ever said otherwise. Now, Tom Anderson, the former president of the California Trial, Law, Trial Lawyers Association, says this. With an event so well publicized, talking about the resurrection, don't you think it's reasonable that one historian, one eyewitness, one antagonist would record for all time that he had seen Christ's dead body? Then he says, the silence of history is deafening when it comes to testimony against the resurrection. If you still want proof, it's there. Keep pursuing it. But let's be honest. 
your skepticism probably has little to do with accepting certain beliefs and a lot to do with fearing what the implications of your life might be if you accept those beliefs. Just last weekend, our student choir took a mission trip to St. Louis, and in the midst of all the ministry our team did in that short amount of time, one really cool thing that came from that trip was a decision that one of our students made to, to follow Jesus. I won't mention his name for confidentiality purposes, but this week I learned that when this student was a baby, his mom couldn't adequately care for him, and, and so he started living with his uncle. Now, there were times when he and his uncle were, were homeless, living in a box out on the streets. Well, as he grew up, he started dabbling into drugs and getting into a lot of trouble. But one thing this student had going for him was that he had a lot of musical talent. Well, luckily, one of his teachers actually saw that in him. She also happened to be a mentor of ours at our Worship Arts Academy just east of here in Newburgh. And so one day, this student accepted the invitation to start taking lessons at our academy, You see, just like Paul building bridges with the culture in Athens by acknowledging their idols and quoting their well-known poets, the Worship Arts Academy seeks to use art to establish common ground so that we can point people to Jesus. It consists of of teachers and artists and musicians just disguised as missionaries, to tell you the truth. And so with time, the student began trusting his teacher, all the while in the process learning that he has a heavenly father who longs to see him adopted into his forever family. Well, a constant source of doubt for him, though, was that he had prayed many times that God would bring his mommy back to him, but each time that he prayed, no matter the intensity, God seemed silent. And so he thought, well, God must not exist, or if he does, he doesn't care for me, so why would I want to be in a relationship with him? And isn't that a lot of our stories in here today? You see, here's the thing. The root of a lot of our doubt is silent or insufficient answers to our questions, right? And so last Saturday, our team got off the bus in downtown St. Louis to love on some homeless men and women. Our worship pastor, David Reinhardt, was talking and praying with a homeless man who was just going through a lot. Unbeknownst to David, this student walked up behind him and overheard David talking with this homeless man, something along the lines of, hey buddy, God is not far from you, he cares for you, he longs to restore your relationship, Jesus has taken care of your sin problem, all you have to do is say yes to him. David may have been talking to that homeless man, but really God was speaking to this student. And so challenged by what he overheard David saying, this teenager later asked David what he needed to do. Again, the origin of every significant relationship begins with a question. And so David said, you you need to say yes to Jesus. I mean, you must decide that if you want to follow Christ, then, then you need to be all in. God desires to redeem your story, man, but you must first take a step towards him. And so you and I have to imagine the look of surprise on everyone's face on Saturday night when the whole team gathered for devotional time and the student came forward to publicly declare that he was saying yes to Jesus. See, that very night, he was baptized in the hotel pool. Now, were all of his questions answered? No. I mean, did he still have a lot of skepticism about what the Bible has to say about certain things? Most certainly. Moving forward, as a follower of Jesus, will he still have a lot of doubts and questions? If he's normal, he will, right? 
But you see, the thing for him and the thing for you and the thing for me, it is not the strength of our faith that saves us, but it is the strength of the one in whom we place our trust. You see, God is not after our belief. Even the demons believe, the Bible says. God is not after our obedience. The Pharisees were really good at obeying. But you see, God is after our trust. And trust only happens through experience. And experience can only happen if you decide to move forward out of what God has made very clear to you and what you know to be true. And so maybe like our student, you're, you're at a place in your life where you want to say yes to Jesus. I mean, sure, you've still got a lot of questions, but it's about time that, that you stop wallowing in doubt. And so you might be thinking, well, what do I do? Where do I need to go? What's my next step? Well, I think the Apostle Paul makes it pretty clear to us in Acts chapter 17, verse 31 in our text. He says this, he, talking about God, commands all people everywhere to repent. And so this word is really the invitation today. You see, to repent literally means to think differently. Think of it like you're heading down Lincoln Avenue one direction, but then you make a U-turn. And so before Jesus, you're living for yourself, your desires, your gratification, your pleasure, your dreams, your fulfillment. But then you meet Jesus, and it's, it's about turning the car around and living for him alone, finding your identity and what he's done for you. You see, it's not so much what you're turning from in your life, which is important, as much as it is who you're turning to. And that's Jesus. And so that's our invitation today. If, if you're ready to repent of your sin, if you're ready to find a lasting identity in Christ alone, what I want you to do is when the service is dismissed here in a little bit, just stay seated. A section host wearing a red lanyard will, will come and, and make their way towards you and we'll meet you right where you're at. We'll answer questions that you have. God can deal with your doubts. He, he's bigger than all that, believe it or not. But he does want you to say yes to him. He does want you to turn to him. And so if that's a decision that you need to make today, you just stay seated as we're all dismissed here in a little bit uh, and we'll help you out with that. Let's pray and then we're gonna continue to worship. Father, I'm so thankful that God, you can deal with our doubt and, and, and doubt is good, but God, it can also be an excuse to not do what, what we know we need to do. And a lot of us in this room need to turn to you seeking complete significance and identity and what you've done for us. And so, Father, would you help us with our questions? And God, it's, it's very clear that you have made it known to us that, that there is something greater out there, that what we're running after in life, whatever it may be, ultimately, ultimately, God, we're searching for you. And so, God, meet us where we're at. And I thank you that you can that you can not only deal with our doubts, but God, you can provide some really good answers because a relationship with you in this world is the only thing that makes sense. And it's the only thing that can keep us hanging on in the midst of darkness. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.